you set down a mug and you expect it to to stay there, right? And not go through the table. And or not go through it. Go thing. partially into <laughs> yeah. the table, then vibrate a bunch, and then shoot into space. Scotch. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 391 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I'm a crustacean. I'm Sam, and I'm wearing cashmere gloves. Fingerless. <laughs> Ooh, fancy. Oh. Yours are cashmere? I mean, they came from Marshalls, but they are fancy. Mine are just, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, wool, probably? I don't know. Not cashmere. Mm, get that thing. scratchy. Get that scratchy yeah. feeling. Yeah. And I'm not wearing fingerless gloves because, um, you know, I'm all about I'm all about aerodynamics. It's because you don't know how to live. Yeah. And today is November 21, 2020. You, before we get started, we have a warning. Uh, there's going to be profanity in this show. Uh, thankfully, we've made it so far without any before the warning. So good job, team. Uh-huh. We'd just like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Thank you very much for the recurring donations. And if you'd like to support the podcast, go there and we'll grab your money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, speaking of fingerless gloves, you know, you don't, we don't have a clothing item that's a radiator. That radiates heat away, right? We only have mm, insulative right. clothing of varying degrees. Because it's one of those complaints I always have about why, like, the heat sucks so much is because you can. There's a limit to how many clothes you can take off, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but you can't put on clothes that make you cooler. Yeah, you can always put on more clothes and make yourself warmer, right? You can always add heating devices to yourself because you can get those little hot hands packets. You know, you can. What about those like kinds those, of moves you got? Those wicking, wicking fabric. For you know, when you're at being an athlete and stuff, yeah. So it's like help pull. Yeah, well, that's just using your your natural. That's using your sweat. system to, oh which, which is still really, a, it's still a radiative system, right? Because it basically like it collects the heat and as it evaporates, it pulls the heat away, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't have like you know like a it's like a CPU. You know, on, the, on your CPU, you got that little radiator. You know, mm, it's like, you want, like why don't big we have heat sink on your back? Yeah, or if or if you're like Seth and you got hot hands instead of cold hands, like why isn't there a radiator? He can just like stick to the back mm, of his yeah. hand and just have mm-hmm. that heat radiate right away. Yeah, a passive one though. Yeah, yeah passive. You know. Yeah, I but think you could probably th- get some big fans on there. Oh yeah, get, I'd get water cooling pipes yeah, all oh. over your bod. Yeah, well, I, I, but that would be too loud. I think I think the moisture is the is the key because you can actually make um you can make a, a, like a, a an in home air conditioner thing it's called a swamp take, cooler. Yeah, what is it like? You take a bunch of uh, wet towels or and you put them on a yeah you put them on a uh, a clothes rack or whatever, mm. and then you just have a fan that just blows air through like where the towels are, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. uh, and and as the as it evaporates, it's a cooling process as the water mm-hmm. evaporates, right? And it actually it actually works extremely well. It does it makes things humid though. Yeah, but, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. yeah, you're because you're taking it. But you know, if you're at a, if you're at a point where you're like so hot that you you know you want to to cool down using any mm-hmm. means necessary, so you're just like soaking towels in water and putting a big fan in front of it. It's a good means. A little bit of extra humidity. Yeah. No, no problem. And the temperature does go down. They, they cooled stuff down to like 50 or 60 degrees. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I'd probably do that. You know, I, I think, I think it's all about evaporation. Just put some like, put, if you could get a glove that had like a clamp on the back or something where you mm-hmm. could like get some wet, like a wet piece of the glove, <laughs> strap it on there, let that thing cool. That'd be good. Yeah, I might do it. It simulates being sweaty, I guess. This is what it is. 
Uh, all right. So we're about to come into Thanksgiving break. Um, so we are recording this episode a little bit early, well, not a little bit, quite a bit early, like five days early, because um, we're going to have a short week. Uh, and so for this episode, we're just going to talk a little bit about what we've been up to in Crashlands 2 and one of the kind of cool technical things that we have that we have achieved over these past few weeks. Um, and then we'll get into some questions. So let's, do it. Uh, let's talk about... Let's talk about something technical. So we'll try to keep this pretty um, high level for those, you know, who aren't uh, programmers or who aren't like deep into game dev, uh, but are just still kind of interested in what kinds of weird technical innovations and problems we have to solve to make the games that we want to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So so here's the problem that we have always had. Um, and it's a problem that we've been trying to solve incrementally just all of the time, which is the problem of, of needing to create custom solutions to seemingly unique problems. So when we're trying to add a new feature to a game, we'll say like, okay, uh, we want a new, uh, a new kind of boot in this game that like whenever uh, this boot is like, whenever you're at full health and you're wearing these boots, then your feet catch on fire and you run super fast and you leave like a trail of fire behind yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's called the, uh, the 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 full stomach hot boots or something. Yeah. And, every, and every ten seconds, if there's an enemy within ten feet, it'll burst into flames. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because the air is so hot around yeah. these hot boots. So hot. Okay. Yeah. So this is like a, a pretty outlandish idea, and and the way that we would have to implement that in the past is we would we would talk through the design of it, um, and then I would go and program it, and it would be a custom set of code that was specifically just for those boots, right? And if we ever wanted to take something from those, like how we made those boots work and reuse that in another item, like maybe we want something else that lets you leave a fire trail as you run as well, like a a hot pepper that you eat or something, Mm -hmm. then, then we would take that code and we would sort of come up with a way to reuse that code in another place. But again, it would be a programmer problem, right? Well, Programming is a is a big bottleneck for making the game because programming is kind of where the rubber meets the road of like taking an idea and turning it into instructions for the computer to actually do it, which means that tons of things are a programming problem. So you're always having to weigh uh, your priorities of like, well, maybe the game is running kind of slow and we have to do some optimizations, but also we've got to get it working on the Xbox, but also we've got this set of bugs from the QA team. Those are all programming problems. And so if you want to add these cool hot boots, uh, how do you decide when to do it? And and also it, it increases your cycle times because other things have to get done as well, and that new feature gets thrown into the mix, and it's just going to take a while. For or if you, you have them. added them, but they're not quite right, so then you need to iterate on them. Right? Then there's more programming problems. Yeah. Um, and so part of a big part of our ambition for making Crashlands 2 is just like, how do we take things that we think are programming problems and just make them not be programming problems anymore? Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of what you see in modern game engine development is also this exact yep. thing. So whether it's Game Maker or Unreal, you know, Game Maker does stuff like you have, uh, you know, like rooms and room editors uh, that basically are a visual representation of, a, you know, programming construct that allows someone who's not necessarily a programmer to go in and do some stuff. You have things in Unreal, like a node editor, or node graph that allows you to make all sorts of zany things happen or even like 
basically code up logic for a game, but without actually is that code. blueprints or is that the Unity one? Blueprints, yeah, blueprints. blueprints. Right. Um, yeah, U- Unity has a, a thing called Shader Graph that allows you to use this kind of node based editor to make shaders. And, and you know, there there is a decent amount of like um, it's math still technical. And all, and, yeah, yeah, it's still still technical, but but you don't have to necessarily learn a full programming language to make cool shaders. You know. Um, it's all about trying to get higher layers of abstraction away from the details of yeah. of how it happens and being able to specify what should happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so so as we've been talking through a lot of the the sort of our, our next phase of of Crashlands two development, we're working towards some pretty big things um, where we want to have like armor sets that if you're wearing you know multiple pieces of equipment from this set, then you get an interesting effect. Or this there's a trinket that you can wear that that has has this kind of if then thing going on right like oh if you uh get a critical hit with a a bleed then something happens mm-hmm. right um because those create really interesting kind of like gameplay moments and and cool ways to combo your your abilities together right mm-hmm. um it's all about events if something then something else right. and so so we were th- talking through kind of how to do this and we realized that that if we took the time then we could come up with something that we could put into the game changer which is our no code game editor um where we could just kind of just have somebody just come in who and, and not in a programming way but they basically just using drop down boxes and check boxes and stuff where they could just describe what they want to have happen and then attach that sort of set of instructions to whatever it is that they're talking about so boots a chili pepper to eat whatever right whatever it is yeah um so we called this the reactions system um and uh we started working on it and it i think it took about what uh just over a week i think to to piece that thing together and and get it working in the in the game changer um and i went back through and started removing code from the game and replacing that code with stuff from the reaction system and it works Right, uh, but but what's cool about it now is is there's a bunch of stuff like what I described with maybe like these weird hot boots where that's not a that's not a programming problem anymore all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 I could I could even come in even though I'm the programmer and without writing a single line of code I could add those boots to the game and hit play and test them out and run around and and if they're not quite what I want I just go back to the game changer and I can adjust some sliders or change a couple of numbers or add a couple conditions or effects to it. I'm going to go back in and no new code has been added. Don't even have to commit any, mm-hmm. any code. Don't have to deploy a new build. It's just like ready to go. And so Sam, Sam can do that as well. Um, and then if there's any new pieces uh, or like new kinds of conditions or new kinds of, of like actions that we want it to do, then that's a programming problem. But once we implement that, then that's reusable for every other thing forever. Right. Um, and so, so suddenly it's kind of like, it's, it comes back to this philosophy that we've been trying to work on with with Crashlands to throughout, which is do a lot of thinking and, and planning up front to try to make your life much easier later. You know, yeah. it's um, a big part of it has been asking the question: How do we put the the most challenge and the most difficulty for uh, the work into the correct place? What I mean by that is. How do you put it as close to the finish line as possible so that the problem is not that every time you want to make a new item, you know, oh God, like a programmer has to come in and initialize a bunch of stuff and like six different scripts across the whole project, push a bunch of things, 
uh, work directly paired with the designer to like get some feedback on it, blah, blah. How do you skip just all that and end up at the place where, where you talk through a design together that seems like everyone's excited about and then someone could just go off and basically figure it out and do it uh, but without having to use programming as like the means of production right the means of content implementation and from a like technical achievement standpoint it's really interesting because we with level head with all the games that we've had we always we always are trying to pick a thing or two things right that uh, we've talked about this before when you're making a new game as a studio part of the decision criteria for what project to embark on or how big to make it or whatever else can and should be what kind of capabilities you as a team are trying to develop next, right? So not just what you already can do, but like, okay, where are you pushing into? Um, and with this, with, you know, Crashlands 2, that was a big part of our reason for making this game at this time anyways. Coming off of level head, we had this level editor thing. We we're like, wow, okay, this is a, this is a big deal for us to be able to have these, this kind of quality of internal tooling. Um, let's take that to the next level. And then let's say, what does it look like if you could somehow almost get the same kind of fluidity, but with content creation inside of the game? And I think, unfortunately, it's one of those things where if you're just a gamer, for example, and and you're describing like a concept to someone else that you've seen in a game, like, oh, in Sonic, like there's these rings and you pick them up and they go bling, you know, um, there's a lot of things that are very easy to describe just as a person but that are just stupidly complicated to try to get to work inside of any given game, right? Stupidly complicated. Yeah, because we've talked in the past about the, the door problems mm -hmm. about this, right? Which is the, the idea of the door problem is if somebody just says, oh, well, our game should have doors. Like whenever there's a building, there should be a door into the building. And then the, the, the job of the game designers come in and say, and ask all the, the real questions about what does that mean, right? Like, can can the player open the doors? If so, what is the key bind? Are the mm -hmm. keys rebindable, or, or like, do we even have enough key, uh, buttons on a controller? What about on mobile? How do you open the door on mobile? Right? Mm -hmm. uh, does it open both directions? Can enemies open does, it? Do, are some of them can locked? enemies open it? Are there keys? Do the doors have physics? So if you open them, do they like do they have to push the player away? Uh, you know, and like all of a sudden, what, what seems like you know, as a human, you know what a door is, and you've experienced doors your whole life, and so there's all these aspects of doors that seem like a given, but every single one of those would have to be fully described and accounted for to make doors work in a game. Yeah, right. well, it's about the hidden assumptions, right? It's like yes. when you're when you're used to some pattern out in the world, then you become completely unaware of just how many sort of basically design decisions, you know, whether it's a natural phenomenon or a human-made one, right? There's basically a whole bunch of like design components that make that thing up, and it's like gravity. It's like you know, you you set down a mug and you expect it to. To stay there, right? and not go through the table, and or not go through, go thing. partially into <laughs> yeah. the table, then vibrate a bunch, and then shoot into space, which yeah. happens in game physics, yeah, quite it, a bit. You don't even, even get oh, to yeah. assume that, you know, in a game context, right? Yeah. And so I think it's one of the fun things about game design um, and implementation. I think programming in general is the realization of just every time we go try to model something out in the world, you know. Um, even if it's a fictional one, like in a game, but you're trying to like all programming is about trying to take some thing you're trying to accomplish and make a functional model of it. Right. And to do it, you have to identify every single assumption that goes into mm -hmm. the context of that. And it's just remarkable how many hidden assumptions you're just dealing with in your moment to moment life that just never go examined. Um, but when you have mm -hmm. to, you know, then you discover like, holy shit, there's just a lot going on here. Yeah. And you can really only, even in your day-to-day -day life, you can only abstract it down so far because, you know, there's also like 
chemical interactions and and molecular interactions that make things work the way that they work. Oh yeah. Like how do, how, how does your creamer mix into your coffee? You know, um, mm-hmm. like it, when you're programming stuff in a game, you're abstracting things into the simplest form possible because you're not you you can't program every molecule. There's no there's not enough computing power in the world for that. And also why, right? Yeah. Because why? from a design <laughs> perspective, what, what the player would expect is like, if they can pour creamer into a cup of coffee in the game, what do they expect? Oh, well, the coffee kind of like changes color a little bit, you know, but they don't like, necessarily expect like the swirly fluid physics. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Or there's a name for the convection behavior, right. That comes out. Yeah. And, and well, then yeah, potentially nice. like there may be some like, Oh, like now that I put creamer in my coffee, it gets plus 10, flavor points or some right. shit like yeah. that, right? And it's like, because you're just abstracting things out into some kind of a numerical experience for the player because they can't actually, you know, yeah. taste well, I think it. This is, this is a, again, it's like, this is a fun place where like science, like doing science meets like making video games, right? Because in both cases, what you're trying to do is come up with a sufficient model of something that you can describe because that's, once it's, once it's describable, right? Mm-hmm. Then that means you can test it. You can you can like talk about it, right? You can put equations on it, or in the case and then of you can simulate. So you can simulate it, right? Changes to the model. Or, yeah, and then you know, see whatever. if yeah. like your and then see if your model gives you the outcomes that you expect from the real world, right? That's right. basically all that science is. And and it's all about trying to find like, like in science, you're always going deeper and deeper, but you're still always at some layer of abstraction because it's. It's literally impossible to like hit the bottom, right? You just keep on going. Yeah, we don't really and, know what's at the bottom. It's all yeah, theoretical. Yeah, and the job of like our job in science is to like see how far down we can go. But it's still always like then to build this like model that reflects the real world. But then in games, there's not a re- the, there's not a real world you're trying to model. There's an imagined world, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't behave the same as the real world. And so now you have this this like interesting collection of two things where one is how do we construct an imaginary world that behaves close enough to the real world that despite being imaginary, players like things happen as players expect, right? You can yeah, deliver you can, it's not a crazy place. It, you yeah, can read it. There's like right, as a person. gravity exists if it's not a space game and so on, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but then instead of in science, we're going as deep as you can in in game design and actually in a lot of like kind of entertainment, right? Media, you're basically trying to figure out how high you can stop, right? It's like yes. How shallow what's can the, you go? What's the shallowest we can go? Right, where, yeah. where we have a model that that creates that experience and feels real, right? Um, but in, but in all those cases, it's the same. Where it's like having some aspect of the world or the, an imagined world that you're trying to figure out how do I describe in full, mm-hmm. right? In a way that delivers that same expected outcome. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so when it comes to then to this reaction system, the idea here was if we could if we could sort of tease out this the salient building blocks of all of these interesting things, um, then, and then we could come up with these little prepackaged instructions that are just, that are modular and we can always add more conditions to them or add more triggers to them or add more outcomes to them. Uh, and then somebody can, can describe things however they want. So, yeah. So, so coming up, we have, you know, this, this kind of plant that has some kind of poison thing going on. Right, like maybe it's going to release a poison cloud if something comes near it, or uh, or maybe just when it gets hit by something, it releases a poison cloud, or maybe there's some way to neutralize its poison by using an item on it or something. Um, so up until now, all of those things have just been sitting there on the design table because they would they were programming problems and we had other programming priorities, right? 
Well, now with the reaction system, we we could just do them right now. Like we'll as, soon as, yeah, as, <laughs> as soon as yeah, as soon as we as soon as we finish wrap up this this podcast episode, it's like yeah, just go to the game changer, describe how you want that to to work, uh, and then it and then just go, hit play and mm-hmm. go go over to that plant and see what it does, right? Uh, but we all we're all we'll also definitely run into some some questions like oh, I I wanted this kind of a trigger, but we don't have that trigger yet, right? No problem. That's a, that's now a small programming problem that's mm-hmm. now fully reusable within this system, um, and so so we can prioritize that and get that get that in, and then boom, we have that available for every future thing. Uh, so yeah, I mean overall, it's this is uh, I'm very excited about it. It's going to open up tons of of interesting uh, new gameplay opportunities and ways for us to iterate super super fast and all these new. Yeah. new pieces of content. Uh, the one thing that we don't have yet, which is kind of the next big challenge is, is the visual side of it, which is how do we, how do we, without using code, how do we make it so that we can tie all these actions and behaviors to our animation system? So, right. So we can say, oh yeah, like when this plant does this, you know, explodey cloud thing, um, it also creates this visual effect or it animates in this certain way. Um, and how do we how do we describe that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the next step. But you know, I feel like the hard part is over. Oh yeah, no, the, the hard yeah. part is definitely. <laughs> over. Uh, yeah, so very excited about that, and it's and uh, it's going to definitely allow us to just just blast more and more content uh, into this game. So um, I'm actually kind of starting to get alarmed at. Um, I've kind of I've kind of pivoted in my mindset. Where like when we first started working on Crashlands Two, I was intimidated by the scope. So I was pretty like, freaked out by the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, the amount of stuff on this design document is is a lot. It's too much. It's there's too many things on here in terms of what our capabilities are, right? And now on the on the other side of it, now that we've got all this tooling made, now I'm actually worried from the, a different direction, which is I'm worried that we will put too much stuff into the game. And that there'll just be too many things, like the, right, because it's it's so easy and it's so possible for us to just pack a million different kinds of of you know pieces of armor and equipment and creatures, you know, whatever. And uh, and it 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 could definitely be the case that the game becomes unfocused uh, because we can whatever we think of, we can just put it in there. Mm-hmm. There's no friction, right? Well, that's um, where the, there's the very nice, little friction. The nice remaining reality is that uh, because there's still limited art resources, now that's where the mm-hmm. most costly that's part true. of this goes. That there's uh, there's still enough friction. You, you want you want some, you know? Because yeah, if everything's just free to do, then it's kind of a little bit too uh, can be a little bit too wibbly wobbly on uh, just what goes in, right? Yeah, but, but nothing is nothing is because yeah. like even once you get if you get it rid of every single bottleneck the thing that's still left is design mm-hmm. you know so no way around that one you got to decide what to do and why right and mm-hmm. so uh so that's a limitation uh or that, that's basically where the crate that's where the constraints come from they come from the design right and good design takes into account all the constraints about also the, the rest of the system process yeah. right but if as those constraints go away then design becomes limited to other constraints, right, which are focused on like what kind of an experience we're we trying to create, and like how do we mm-hmm. how do we manage our resources, and how do we deliver that, right? That's where and, we yeah. want to be. At, yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's the better place to have that bottleneck. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's well. I'm sure we'll have more to say about if we if we come up with some kind of weird, interesting way to kind of like uh, 
solve this animation or visuals problem in a way that we can kind of you know convey on the on the podcast. Uh, you know, we'll we'll talk about that. But yeah, it'll be yeah, fun so, once we can so start far, like, it's putting moving. videos out or something of kind of how some of the stuff works since it's so yeah. abstract to talk about just with words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let's get into some questions. Uh, these questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. The highest uploaded question comes from John Flavin, who says, Hey, bros, I heard this listener question on a different gaming podcast, Waypoint Radio, and mm-hmm. I am shamelessly ripping it off. What's the worst video game experience you've had with a game that you finished? We've all had bad experiences with a game, and it's so easy to simply put it down and move on. But when have you boldly powered through the bad experience to reach the conclusion? You know, what's funny is I was just thinking about this kind of experience because of Pokemon Scarlet and Violet launching uh, this last Oh, yeah. What's going on with that? All I've heard is – so I don't follow Pokemon anymore, Mm -hmm. but I've just seen the occasional screenshot or video where people are basically saying, what the fuck is this? Correct. So, basically, that, okay. so the short of it is that they they pivoted to this open world game model, and they've they've, they've tried a couple different uh, kind of mechanical styles with it. So the last one was uh, Pokemon uh, Arceus, where you would actually just you kind of like ran around the world and you just chuck Pokeballs at Pokemon like just directly. Like there wasn't a so Pokemon are just kind of vibing. They're just they're vibing out, out there. Chilling. It's like it's like the real world, right? It's like if there's a deer, and you just start throwing Pokeballs at it, right? Um, and then the deer, you know, turns into a giant Gets fireball and, and kills you, sort of a thing. Um, yeah. So in this newest one, they have more of a combination of that plus the original model where you do still battle them and stuff like that. But uh, and so there's been a lot of praise for them continuing to try, you know, pushing into that open world thing. And it, it does feel there's, of course, all sorts of issues with it, but like from a design standpoint, but it feels more awesome than, you know, the very linear structure of all the old ones. But this game is so broken. Just broke as fuck. Like, I don't know. Uh, so, you know, we talk a lot about getting through lot check with Nintendo. And like, yeah. oh boy, did they just allow themselves to not give a shit about any of their own guidelines? Because the sheer amount, I'm not even kidding, like the sheer amount of bugs present in here is very clearly sh- showing that there is a two-party system for this whole thing where it's like first-party titles. Frankly, uh, you know, you're coming out do on whatever release you date. Do whatever you want. So you want to you want to launch a broke-ass game where like, the graphics just people are falling through the world frequently. The camera's <laughs> clipping through all sorts of things. Uh, there's just like I saw one where as someone got on their uh, mount and then off and then on and off. Every time they got on, their characters started stretching and turned into like a horrifying I saw that. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and like just really weird stuff. And the frame rate dropping down to literally like two frames per second. All like we had very various scenarios, textures just looking like shit. Like it is wild how frankly poor the quality control is on this thing. And and yet, and yet again, the, the general commentary is like people are like, well, you know, if you discount that, like if it's you really ignore cool. all these glaring problems. Yeah, I don't want to talk game. about that for real. Cause like, cause yeah, I think this is one of those things where how uh how like how much into or already bought in basically to a franchise you have to be to allow this game costs 60 bucks. You know what I mean? Oh, damn. To allow like that kind of an experience to be essentially acceptable. You know what I mean? Um, on a large scale. But it's, it's not even about being bought into it. It's about because, because there are other franchises that like fuckloads people love and play that they get really like there's like the community is like mad about those things mm-hmm. instead of 
forgiving about them, right? And what we've kind of always seen historically with Nintendo is that there's enough of a sense of like good faith in the community, it seems, that mm -hmm. they're kind of forgiven of all. All is forgiven, you know? Yeah. Um, just about always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, is, is both frustrating to see uh, on the indie side of things because, of course, like you don't have any of that. You, don't have, yeah, you just don't have nearly enough of that anything. kind of audience good faith. But at the same time, I think, uh, and again, back to the question, I think it's interesting when you ask the question like, okay, what would it mean to to create a game? What would you have to do on the design side on the design side to create a game that people will play and continue to play, clamor about, tell their friends about, despite the fact despite that it's broke as fuck, right? And I remember like my initial experience. Or just there's some aspect of it that's just badly designed. Even, yeah, that's just terrible. You know? So yeah. I think, you know, I think I think if we just like tweak that question a little bit, so it's less about like finishing the game, and just ask like, what's the worst design or just experiential problem that you've had yeah. that didn't that wasn't the cause of you stopping the game, right? That you right. played despite you just continued whether, whether or not you finished the game. Yeah, yeah, and I know for me, like uh, playing, I don't know, like Terraria, for example, I think is always a one I come back to because the overall inventory management and like just the controls are pretty clunky for getting around. It's really hard setting up multiplayer, which we used to do, you know, back in the day, not through steam um, was like a, just a wild thing trying to figure out how to get all that stuff to work. Uh, and yet, you know, like despite the clunk, despite like the, the overall aspect ratio of the thing, like all sorts of just stuff. Uh, yeah. Once I got into it, it didn't matter. Didn't matter at all. Um, mm -hmm. Even though the whole time I was like very annoyed, but again, it's sort of annoyed. The annoyance is registering somewhere else, I guess, because I'm still getting what I need out of the loop, you know, out of the game. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the annoyance is sort of on top. And I think that's I think, that's the trick, you know. Yeah, I think inventory management is the thing that if I really like a game, it's the thing. Like inventory management is almost always the thing that kicks me out eventually, right? But when I really yeah. like a game, it's like that's. That's kind of like the measure of how much I'm willing to tolerate inventory management, right? How long I'll tolerate mm -hmm. it. Because also all these games, like the inventory management grows without bounds, right? And so yep. like, so like Valheim, Terraria, um, V-Rising, Ark, even V-Rising, like all of these games that like, I just love the moment to moment gameplay and like even, and the longer term gameplay and progression and stuff. But over time, the weight of the inventory management went from just like a constant annoyance, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. still not annoying enough to kick me out to something that became like, tr like got on the oversight of unbearable relative to the gameplay experience. And then right. it finally kicked me out. Um, I think, and I think kind of across the board, my worst gameplay experiences that I still played through, like the things that, that I was frustrated with the most and the most consistently, I think is inventory management. Yeah, I guess probably fair. Yeah. I think especially given that kind of the crafting and overall open world genres, I mean, they're, they're evergreen genres that are very, it's a sort of like when you, it's not like when you've played one of them, you don't want to play a different one sort of a thing. Yeah. It's like you, as yeah. soon as you figure out that that's like a thing you like, there's, you really want to try a lot of them, you know? Uh, and yeah, that's always a thing. Always a thing. Yeah. I think like Subnautica is one of those that like, because I think Subnautica's uh, inventory doesn't grow as nearly as fast. Still too fast, but but not nearly as fast because it's less about like hoarding enormous amounts of things than it is about finding things that are hard to find. So it's like, yes. it's more about getting, specific. 
finding that thing than it is like having a thousand of it. But you still have to need a lot of some stuff. So I still like at some point have like a wall of chests, you know, equivalent. Mm-hmm. But it takes so much longer to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it grows more slowly and it's a little – it's just a little less kind of sprawling. And so that's actually one of the few games where even though it got to a point where I was annoyed a lot of the time, every time I would come back to base, you know, and unload my fucking inventory. Yep. I was annoyed every time, but it didn't actually kick me out you know, mm-hmm. of that game. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. No, no game is going to be – it's going to hit every mark, I think. There's always going to be something that the designer was trying to do that either like was an interesting idea, but it didn't necessarily fit with the concept of the game well enough that it kind of like adds jank, you know, Mm -hmm. in the case of like multiplayer with Terraria, right? Like that's something where you could tell that they were like, oh, if we could do this, it would be awesome. Right. Right. And they were so preoccupied with solving the technical problems of just getting that working that yeah. they left the actual like onboarding of multiplayer as a programmer problem, basically. We're like, thankfully, we know a web developer, Adam, so we can play Terraria multiplayer. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is back uh, in the day. It does work really great. Back in the day. Because they use Steam yeah. stuff yep. for it. Yeah. But, uh, a couple um, years ago. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, I, I'd say almost every game that I've played there's been aspects of it where where it easily could have kicked me out of the game easily you know uh, and and sometimes it does i think i think for me i'm not going to list the things because the list would be like longer than my whole body but like <laughs> i've been i've been playing world of warcraft since 2004 and there have been times where i've stopped playing it for a, a couple of years mm-hmm. at a stretch um, because they had made some design decisions that were just very in my opinion, stupid as hell, you know? <laughs> and just really rude, like like undid core parts of the game experience, or or made or added so much friction to the game that it was just annoying to to play it. Or they would like make you have to do a bunch of stuff that you didn't want, that was not actually interesting or fun, but just was like there to keep you playing so that you could go get some stuff or do something. And those are the times where I'm just like, yeah, I'm out, and then I would just stop playing, you know. And then when they went out, when they would launch a new expansion, they would change a bunch of stuff and rip out a bunch of systems. And then I'd be like, all right, I'll, I'll come check it out and see if they've mm-hmm. tweaked their philosophy, you know? Um, and, and, but ultimately like the, the core gameplay, uh, and like the social experience of like being in a guild and having, you know, friends to, to like do this difficult content with and the, the role-playing elements of it and stuff are so good that I'm always going to come back to it, uh, to see how it's going, even if I've been gone, even if, even if they've kicked me out for a while. But I think that's, that to me is actually, is the most interesting part of this question and something I've been personally been thinking about a lot when it comes to uh, questions too, as well as we've been developing it, because again, you have, you have limited resources throughout these, like as no matter how big your dev team, even if you're like a triple A dev, it's like, Oh, this game costs half a billion dollars to make. It's like, yeah, uh, you, but that you actually do have limited resources given the scale of the game, like for certain parts of stuff, right? You can't possibly make everything uh, tuned up to the degree that maybe you would want to. So the ability to identify when a design issue or a bug is the sort that would like actually kick people out, or if it's sort of the ancillary kind that most people, given the the loop of the game, uh, would basically be perfectly willing to tolerate, or even wouldn't even notice, which is the weirdest part. Because sometimes you talk to people about an experience you had with, oh, this like UI is super annoying, and they don't even, you know, I mean, like other people have a, a very different experience of the whole thing. And so I think that's, that's been one of the challenges and one of the interesting things I've been thinking about a lot with Crash and 2 Dev is, 
is how to better identify those places where we should put in time to get that extra little polish and versus those places where, yeah, of course, it'd be nice for everything to be like just freaking, you know, flawless, but you can't really work like that. So how do you tell the difference meaningfully between those kinds of things, you know, or how do you make a game loop or game world that's so compelling that it, like that the bar just the bar for someone exiting starts going up so high. That, yeah, like, the number of fuck ups you would have to commit becomes astronomical. Yeah, right? I'm just Pokemon <laughs> Scarlet and Violet. I'm like, you got you are clipped like, and this these are these bugs are not uncommon. There's, the frame rate drops are constant. Like, I mean, I think Arc is a similar situation to this, right? Because like, Arc yeah. is a buggy as fuck. It's such a buggy game. Uh, at least back when we were playing it a bunch. Um, uh, that's that riding dinosaurs and trying to survive. Dinosaur again. survival. Yeah, yeah, but the. The main gameplay, and also it's like tedious as fuck. Like the, yep. the fucking, the loop there for crafting and leveling up and stuff. Like so, and slow, the, and right? that you need like you need water, you need food. Oh, like yeah. you're, yeah, you know, there, there's this continuous maintenance layer on your on your character mm-hmm. where you're just like right. always dying. You know, so good. Yeah, we got so lots like, of gripes, right? Lots of gripes. yeah. Like I, yeah, I have infinite complaints about that game, but that didn't stop me from playing it for like few dozen hours, you know, because exactly. Exactly. It, it was so fun. So and I think, I think the thing that like, I think the the most dangerous one in terms of like the design problem, right. Is, is that actually, actually this is true of like design for almost anything. Cause I also on the mm. web, this is something I have to deal with a lot is things that grow without bound. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. And in the case of like design, um, that's an unpleasant experience. Right. And I think, I think this is why like inventory management, uh, and, or leveling systems, right? Um, where, because we've talked about this too, where it's like any any loop, like if it's designed around, well, that it gets bigger over time, right? Just like capitalism, you know, there's there's a limit to like yeah. where that can possibly be good. There's a point mm-hmm. at which the system breaks down. Yes, yeah, because growth hits a certain point. Yeah, because yeah. you can't actually grow without bounds. It doesn't make any sense. And so, I think when there aren't systems in place with the design to prevent things that are unpleasant from growing without bound. I think that's where it's now just a question of when do people get kicked out, right? As that thing gets worse and worse over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so like for me, like the big obvious one is like inventory management is like, yeah, I'm right there with you. That's that core thing that eventually even my favorite games in the universe, um, if they haven't found a way to manage that growth without bound um, and they haven't, I think across the board, uh, then at some point I'm just like, this is too fucking tedious. I cannot. <laughs> yeah. I just well, cannot do this anymore. I've talked about how in EVE Online, you know, one of the initial pitches of the game was like, there's this giant galaxy. I think there, I think there's like 7,500 solar systems, star mm. systems that players can occupy. There's planets and all of them, whatever. But uh, I think fully half of those at least are in an area of space called NullSec, which means there's no space cops. There's no security. Mm-hmm. It's it's all player-owned space and players can go there and and claim a star system and it becomes theirs as long as they can defend it. Mm. So so they can they can control that space or whatever and you know the initial pitch of that is like oh that's cool as fuck, right? Like me and my friends can go and like have a claim little. a solar system <laughs> and as long as we got the the, the firepower and the spaceships and the strategy you know to keep to like we can do whatever we want we could like be pirates and we could like attack people as they come through and take their stuff or we could like we could like become part of a trade route 
and like mm-hmm. tax people coming through our system, you know, or whatever it is that you want to do. <laughs> Trolls you can do anything because you know there's no rules, right? But the the point at which it breaks down is is similar to kind of what we see with with uh, with the mergers and acquisitions of companies, you know, in, in the U.S. economy. Is at a certain point it becomes advantageous to join a power block. You know, you, you ally with. You, like your group of 100 people allies with another group of 100 people and then another 100 people, et cetera, et cetera. And pretty soon, uh, almost all of the NullSec space is owned by one mega group of 100,000 people who don't fight each other, mm. right? And then the game becomes totally static. Nothing ever changes and it's boring as hell. Mm-hmm. And then people just stop playing, right? Because if you're a new player coming in, you can't compete with this. You, yeah, you, you can't, you can't take your friends and, and go like start up your own little space station and do your own thing because they'll just come in and squash you in, in, in an hour, mm-hmm. right? And so so your only move is to join them and then not, not do anything yourself. <laughs> just work within their bureaucracy and just do whatever they tell you to do, right? And that's boring, right? Mm-hmm. So it's that it's that weird thing where, yeah, the initial the initial stage of it is really wild. It's very like frontier esque, you know, and it's very fun. But there is an end point, and it seemed like the developers mm. didn't really. I don't know. I don't know why they didn't. They didn't really think that people would like that it would get to that point somehow, or that. Uh, I think they're just describing capitalism, you know, like yeah. Ideas like the design doesn't have a it doesn't have a plan for the fact that it doesn't make any sense at the end to grow without bounds. Yeah, like they're yeah, it can't work. Well, I think there's there's a challenge there too, which is as a developer, it's very hard to like when you have an established player base, it's very hard to make a change for the sake of like yeah, the long term play of the game that un in some ways can appear to be doing undoing the progress or the hard work of your player base, right? So if, if for example, let's say what Eve started doing was like every two months space uh, gets wormholed and like all of the, everything like re just sort of jiggles around and like all the connections between the different star sectors are completely different. And it's like, so you can't actually have these consolidated blocks of space anymore because every few months, like whole thing turns over and now everyone's got to scramble and figure out kind of how to do it again. That's really cool. But if that premise isn't there from the start, and you're one of those groups yeah. of 100,000 people. came out in 2002. So like it actually actually is hitting its 20-year anniversary right now. It, yeah, that's something I was thinking about is is there, there need to be Thanos snaps. Yep. Like there need, to, yep. there need to be reset switches that do something to shake up the the meta, shake up the, you know, like set people back. Even, even if they had set it up and said, okay, Eve is going to run on a three-year cycle or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Where it's like, Every three years, we're gonna reset the universe, right? Yeah, right. And so, so then, then they could build the game around like you know these like sort of long seasons of like people building empires and blah blah blah. Um, and then you know they could give you some kind of long term interesting like ship skins or something yeah, that are that are like that are like from the things that you achieved in past seasons, you know, stuff like that, like how Rocket League does it with battle mm-hmm. passes, you know. But you know. It's hard to do they, after the, the fact. It's the problem, right? When yeah, everybody already yeah. owns space. It's really hard to do. Yeah, um, and so it's it, it is. I think you're right, Adam. It is the case that there's so many interesting game designs that have these interesting um, starting states that are super engaging while you're in the early phases of it. But then once you fully realize the end point, um, like Kerbal Space Program is also one where it's like. 
it's really interesting to figure out how to go to all these places in space. But there's literally nothing to do when you get there. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right? You're like, oh, I'm here now. Okay. I'm done now. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I I played Kerbal Space Program for like 300, 400 hours. And and almost all that time was figuring out how to get to all the different planets and stuff. Right? Mm -hmm. And I did go to all of them. And then I... That was it. I stopped playing because that was that was the journey. There's no more game after that. And this is why this is why roguelikes in particular are such a powerhouse genre for design. Because like the reality is with the roguelike is you get to reset you reset the player knowingly and purposely. Like everyone knows this is happening. Even if the player wins the game, quote unquote, like wins a run, you reset them back to zero. And this allows you to do basically kind of whatever you want on the design side without having to worry about really pesky scaling problems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is maybe scaling is just like like, you can scale a game until you know like its end point, right? But if there's like I think games that like scale really slowly and like that works like in the design, which is a lot of like single player RPGs because I I think of like Mm -hmm. the Fallout, like Fallout Three, New Vegas, and Fallout Four even, right? Where it is the case that by end game, like the kind of early game stuff seems pretty easy, right? Mm -hmm. But somehow actually the overall gameplay experience doesn't really change. You know, like, because right. it's, it's not about the power loop. It's about having found new ways to interact with the game. And it's about like, and it's about exploring the space. And it's about like the individual experiences that you have. Um, and yeah, like you find better weapons and like you want to go get the coolest stuff and like, like Fallout 3 or like trying to get that power armor. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you're doing that stuff. And like, and like a lot of like the way that I've played those games when I used to play them a lot was like, I'd find this like golden path, you know, where, get like the most powerful sniper rifle you know or whatever right mm-hmm. uh, kind of min max it yeah like do that a little way. bit but it still didn't really like change the gameplay that much you know it moved it from like very manageable to like super manageable kind of mm-hmm. like a difference right um but that was really it because then the whole thing is still like you still have to go through this sequence of of like events and challenges and interactions with things um and and so it didn't it didn't actually matter you know that like right whether or not you got the best stuff. And and like when you got the best stuff, they didn't make everything become so easy. It was pointless or whatever now, right? Because there was a, there were other reasons to be doing the things that, that we were doing. Yeah, yeah and, and we're, we're actually finding this because we've been playing Back for Blood uh, a lot, almost every week um, for the past uh, four, six months, something. I don't know. Uh, I think it's been <laughs> a while. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's about a year almost. Really? Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. So it's just like, it's just something that we do as like, a, let's get together and have a gaming night once a week where we just like play for an hour and a half or so and, and uh, shoot some zombies and whatever. Right. And and we've talked about how, about in the past, about how some of our sort of growth journeys as we've learned more about the game and we've, we, we had kind of a hard time in the early difficulty levels and then we figured our shit out and then we moved to the next difficulty level and then that was pretty hard. Um, and now we're we're playing at some of the higher difficulty levels, or is it the highest? Uh, is it, still not the there's, highest. No, there's probably there. one more. Yeah, and and what we're we're starting to have the conversations about, like, I mean, is this it now? Like, yeah, yeah. Is, is it is it just like these these like set of guns and then these cards? And there's really there's, there's no, no more, more like to a, make basically at this point, which is unfortunate. We've run out of yeah of ways to think about or change how we're approaching stuff because we're kind of at yeah. the end point of it. Yeah, we're not really unlocking new abilities for our, our yeah. characters or the ones that we are getting are kind of like in general the the complaint that I've had about Back for Blood is is 
it's it's an interesting game where it's like it it's you go through these levels and you have to get from safe room to safe room and you're fighting lots of zombies um and you have these cards they're basically just like abilities that you can attach mm-hmm. to your your character um and yeah, you can have stats. Fif- yeah and you can have 15 of them um but i've always felt like the cards were were pretty they weren't they're not very courageous yeah. In terms of the kinds of mechanics that they enable, and they'll often be something like, "Oh, you deal ten percent more damage to zombies, but you take five percent more damage, right?" And it's like minor effect, and then for some reason also has a drawback. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know. So it's like, why? Why? You know, give me give me something wild. You know. Yeah. That like, oh, like, you know, whenever you whenever you you kill a zombie, you have a 10% chance to like go berserk and have exploding fire ammo for for 10 seconds or something mm-hmm. like that, you know? Like, give me give me some some weird stuff that that I can use. And we and I feel like we've kind of hit that point where we found all those the the small number of cards that actually do have those kind of big yeah. interesting effects. Um, we've, we've found those and we've explored them and we've even done some stuff that kind of broke the game where we were like, if the point of the game is to get from safe room to safe room, what if we were just fast? Yep. What if we optimize like, for running okay. instead of shooting? Yeah. <laughs> just, just take every card that makes you go fast, that makes you run fast. Um, and we ended up just breaking the levels because the levels are on some dimension, they're time-based Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some cases they're event based where maybe like after a little while of the level, this boss will spawn in this certain area. And you actually have to kill and, it before you could and like you, open the safe yeah, door. You, you have to kill that boss because there's a door at the end that just is not open until the boss is dead. But we never knew that before because we would always get to the boss first mm-hmm. and then we would kill the boss and then we would get to the door and the door just was open when we got there. Right. And so- so we, we've tried to find like ways to come up with interesting strats or ways to kind of like go around the game's mechanics. Um, but we j- tend to be just kind of thwarted, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, or they just aren't enough that. to let us do what yeah. we want. Yeah. yeah. So now we're kind of having the conversation like, ah, is there some other game we should be like looking at playing now? Because, you know, we're kind of like, we've explored this space pretty, pretty thoroughly. thoroughly. Um, well, and it's again, it's, it actually becomes an inventory management problem all over again, right? Because they, because on the one hand, they're not being courageous enough, right? But on the other hand, like now I've got like, what is it, like 15 pages of cards to work through, right? Yeah. To, and very few to ways choose. to actually like sort and filter them. Yeah. Very few um, ways. So I can't, I can't, like when you said, you know, we did, we built these like speed decks, right? Like you couldn't just like filter on things that impact speed, right? Yeah. You had to individually had to look through every single every card. <laughs> card right? yeah. And so, like, I'm at the, because I, I still enjoy the moment to moment gameplay of that game enough that it's like I still have enough fun just playing it that mm-hmm. the sort of static nature now of like my deck, right, um, is fine because um, I can still just have fun playing. Uh, but it, it does mean that that aspect of the game is, has now been taken out of the kinds of experiences that I have because it's so right. fucking tedious. Like there's no – the incremental you know uh, reward I get for like going into being like, mm, can I like – is there some other combination of cards I can put together that's better, right? It's like the decision Maybe, fatigue. but it'll take me three hours to yeah, figure it out. Because so, <laughs> like there's nothing that's been provided. But it, but it is interesting, right? Because if they if all they had done was kept the same cards, basically, 
but provided really detailed ways to like filter and sort them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden I would actually even, I might even spend more time than I would already have to, but because I can do it with, with like making things that feel like actual decisions versus just fucking searching mm-hmm. and like looking at stuff and being like, Oh, I kind of vaguely remember this other card though. So maybe this one's, Better. Well, there's also, there's really no, know. you know, yeah. again, speaking of for like designing for the end of a game versus the beginning, because there's no, yep. there's also no roll up of the stats that you have in your deck, right? So there's no yeah. like, here's yep. your total additional move speed that you've added in the whole deck. You gotta, yep. you gotta manually walk through your cards. Be like, I think there's it's also like no game stats, right? So there's no like, there's no way for you to then like at the end of a game or or a level, right? Be like, how am I doing? You know, compared to yeah. other things, right? <laughs> yep. So you can't even like try to figure out what you could shore up by like changing your deck or like learning new things or whatever. So but this is the interesting thing, right? It's like, is these like these later game things for, for, cause like in the, in the case of this game, like the design requires growth without bound, which is like, you keep adding cards. Right. <laughs> but then there's a limit of 15 cards you can have. And then there are no mechanisms to help you choose which cards to put in. And so that aspect of, of the game's design breaks so fast. Like as soon as you have a lot of cards, that's just gone now, right? But there are these like design changes they can make, like searchable, filterable um, card views, right? Yeah, or stat roll-ups. Or stat roll-ups or being able to see your stats over time, right? There are these kinds of things that they could add to the game that would suddenly make it so the fact that that had kind of broken like that actually gets unbroken. Mm-hmm. And now yeah. instead of just being a thing that like grows and then stops working, it's now a thing that like grows and then asymptotically stops working, right? <laughs> like it's still, it just like works for a long time because there's now other stuff that you can do and other ways of thinking about it. transforms. Yeah, I think that's basically the trick. Yeah. It's like you. Right. Yeah. It changes. At, at the very end of most game loops or most like kind of core experiences, what you have to do is figure out how to transform the loop that you were using into a different one or just transition. You see this in a lot of games. I mean, WoW does this, but it's like you go from leveling up a character being the focus to being something else entirely, right? And it's like Mm -hmm. a lot of games have actually a very dual nature to basically the the growing part of the game and then the the end part of the game, how to keep that a dynamic, interesting experience. Yeah, because the game either has to just actually end at like, about yes. the same point where the growth can't possibly work anymore, right? Uh, or it has to transition into something mm-hmm. else, So, which is, I think, the same idea. It's basically, it's a game ending or changing its form is an acknowledgement of the fact that growth without bound doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It only well, works at the beginning, right? Yeah, you have to figure out how to, how to transition the game into a skill growth model. Mm-hmm. This yep. is why, like, chess is still around, yep. right? Because it doesn't have any power loops, your, yep. your your pawns don't level up every time you play, right? It's 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 just you against the other person, and that's an endlessly interesting uh, s- skill loop, right? And so if you do have a game that has these power loops in it, or like a lot of these deep systems, like with all these cards and back for blood or whatever, then at a certain point you have to make sure that you that that once you once you've run out of cards to give people. And once they have 20 pages of cards, you've got to make sure that they have the tools to make it interesting that that's true. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Like having 400 cards should be good and cool and fun. And mm-hmm. you should always be thinking like, mm, what if I built a deck like this? And then you can go do that as opposed yeah, but to if like, it's hard oh, as man. fuck to build a deck because you can't – it's just so hard to do things on purpose. 
Yeah. Well, and there's no shareability either. Like one of the things that I would love to have is like, you know, if you have like the stat roll up is a way to just see the stat roll ups of your teammates. Yeah. Right. Because then you'd be like, oh, interesting. What is this? What's going on? Like, I didn't realize you could get acid resistance. I mean, I'll do you one better. I think that. Well, especially playing as a team, right? Because like I play with you guys, but I also have another group that I play with every other week on average probably. Yeah. And you can't see anything about what your teammates have. Yeah. So like we just have to guess or like we, because you see your Mm -hmm. like total run roll up for your own character for just like how much damage you've done, how many things you've killed, right? Yeah. But then you're like, is that good? Yeah. But then that means you have to just like say it to each other and be like, how are you? But like each of us have different builds and different purposes though. Right. So there's no way for us to like do like a team, like powwow, you know, and just say like, oh, well, here's, okay. So here's how we're doing here. Uh, Probably if you like did some specking into these cards and we changed like how Mm -hmm. you're playing the game a little bit this way, if I made these changes, right. And then you can go out and try the experiment. So there, but there's just like the meta game of like that part, which mm-hmm. is mostly just showing stuff to people that's already there, yeah. you know. But there's yeah. a whole other one already available, which is every level in Back from Blood, they roll a bunch of these random corruption cards for basically modifying. It's a roguelike in a way. So the game actually changes who, what kind of zombies you're fighting. Sometimes they're now they're made of acid. Now they're going to be like vomiting on you all the time, whatever. Right. But you can't adjust your deck. You can't adjust moment. your deck, yeah. which is insane because again, you have 400 cards. So it's like if I could pre-build a couple decks. And then per thing, decide if I'm going to, oh, I'm going to switch and like edit my deck real quick for two minutes yeah. before this. Swap out things that I literally won't need because circumstances have changed. Well, it actually, right. Because it actually be forces you to generalize your deck, which is yes. boring. Right. Yeah. Because or take you, a bunch of cards that are only going to be useful on that one level where you rolled acid zombies. You, and then the rest of the time, it's it sucks that you used yeah. a slot for that acid resistance yeah. card. Which is why we can't <laughs> yeah, actually true. do It would be, it'd be builds, way right? more fun if you actually, like, you still had to have your decks built, right? But you could just, before each level, basically, mm-hmm. you could, like, see what the level is, see what the cards are that you're fighting against, and be like, mm, I'm going to use my my antacid deck, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> for my early game antacid deck or whatever, right? Uh, or my boss fight in the presence of acid zombie horde mm-hmm. deck or, you know, whatever you want to min-max for. Like, now all of a sudden... You get to make those decisions again. Yeah. 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 And this is this is the kind of thing that always keeps me coming back to wow is is or at least the times when they've when they've removed a lot of the friction to make these kinds of things doable is like they do have three fantastic end game experiences mm-hmm. between player versus player, the mythic plus dungeons that I've talked about, which is like five man mm-hmm. content, and then the the larger raids. All all of them have their own interesting um, like skill loops and progression paths. And there are endless ways to analyze and customize and think about different ways to approach each of these different kinds of, of content. And that like the meta is always shifting because people are learning more stuff all the time, you know? Um, and, and I, I think it's the reason why, you know, the game's still around after, I guess, eight, oh, yeah. 18 years. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that, it's an easy trap to fall into is to only think about the upfront design of the game and what it's going to be like at the very beginning when the players first landing on the moon or first getting their new card in back for blood or when they get, you know, when their bag is only half full mm. in, in arc, right? That's fun and interesting. What happens when you have a base with 80 chests in it <laughs> <laughs> and there's a T-Rex that has invaded your base, you know, is that fun uh, or is that just, 
mm-hmm. you know, annoying. Yep. So, so always remember um, when you're dealing with a growth model, always ask the question, what happens what's when inevitably <laughs> it breaks? The, yeah, because like, things cannot grow without bounds and be good. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's got to transition into something else. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa DaCosta, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the podcast archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.